Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Last week was a really busy one for me in London. It was one of those weeks where you get to the end and you fish through your jacket pocket and find lots and lots of business cards because you've been out to so many events. I started by giving a speech to a private gathering. Then the next day was at the Inside a London event, which was really good and extremely well attended and had some incredibly high-powered keynote speakers and panel discussions. Then on Thursday, I went back to the same venue just off Fenchurch Street uh, for rating agency Fitch's European Outlook. This was also really well attended and had some excellent speakers. So if you're listening from outside London, which I know many of you are, uh, the main takeaway is that the London market is in really good health and is grasping the nettle of market reform with an urgency and vigour that I haven't seen in at least 20 years. If the market manages to execute even half of the projects it has planned, it will be set fair for the next few decades at least. I think the other sign of the market being in such a healthy state is that there are well-funded new startups forming to take advantage of market conditions and the changing dynamics arising from some of the major consolidation that's been taking place. And that's what this podcast is all about, uh, because right at the end of the week, I was lucky enough uh, to catch up with Phil Smage, who's the CEO, and Marcel Chad, who's the president of newly launched London-based aviation challenger broker, Peak Risk Partners. Peak is part of BGC Partners, which is also the owner of wholesale brokers, Ed Broking and Besso. It's a really interesting new addition to the lineup of London specialty intermediaries. And Phil and Marcel are both aviation veterans with really long careers at the major brokers. The timing is really good uh, because whilst other segments of the global market are just hardening, there is no doubt at all that all parts of the aviation insurance and reinsurance markets are in full correction mode uh, and are experiencing the kind of genuine hard market that doesn't come around very often. Anyway, do enjoy the listen. I think Phil and Marcel tell a really interesting story about peak at what is a pivotal time for the aviation market. My first question was to Phil asking him to tell us the story behind the formation of Peak and what was it all about. So Peak uh, is an opportunity in a a complex and high-profile sector to to disrupt uh, the status quo. Um, We've done this because the market is fundamentally dominated by few, um, three major brokers in the class. It's been fairly stable both in terms of uh, individuals and expertise and where they reside and and within the client base so there's been some movement of business but nothing fundamental um conversations uh went went on um and it became obvious that there was interest from the backers uh in this particular class um they knew a little bit about it um and we've come in with the objective to build a business um, it's different from where we've come from. We've both come from large broking houses. That's where where our background is. We, there already was a business, yeah. Uh, and um, and um, the encouraging we've had some encouraging signs and signals. Um, and you know how are we trying to do this? So we're trying to do this by a mixture of uh, the talent base. Um, we both know a lot of people across the industry. We come from slightly different backgrounds. Mar- Marcel's focus in the past was predominantly around the aerospace manufacturing sector. If you go way back into my history, I had a background in satellite insurance and then 
spent some time focusing on some of the major airline business. So we, we understand we understand the talent. Um, what we think Peak can bring is an entrepreneurial spirit um, with some independent thinking. Uh, when you when, when you understand a little bit more about our backers, uh, BGC partners, they are a financial services firm. Um, so there's a, there's there's a medium to long term view about this investment, but they're also a technology firm. Some of the things they've done in terms of disruption around some of the non core investments is is significant. And clearly, uh, when certainly for my part, I was thinking about the future of insurance broking. Um, there's a combination of factors. There's a te- technology play, as I've said, but there's some thoughtfulness around data analytics as, as some customers get more thoughtful and, and sophisticated in terms of their needs from a broker. But you've got to marry up that with the talent. Um, and clearly, so far, we've been significant in terms of the investment. So is that you need that independent structure so that there's things like equity and things that are on offer to people who are coming to jump over? Um, what about the timing, though? So you said the word disruption or disrupt uh, uh, twice there, Phil. But I'm going to ask Marcel. I mean, both of you have come from this um, this large corporate background. So, is it what is it about the timing? Um, what, why is it good now? I mean, there are some obvious large uh, mergers that have happened. Um, was that it? Was that was that the trigger, or was it was there something else? Well, it's a combination of factors, I think. Um, as Philip referenced, we've both spent um, our entire careers working for the larger brokers where one could take the view that specialty, and in particular aviation, is a rounding error. Um, although um, Willis and Marsh have large aviation businesses within the overall context of their larger organisations they're part of, their they're, they're tiny components. So we saw an opportunity to form a bespoke um, boutique, highly specialised highly specialized um, team, um, which is going to be relatively narrow but very deep. And at a point in time where we're seeing a change in market conditions, aviation's faced a soft market for some 10 or 15 years with some uh, odd years where, where things have flattened out. We're now seeing a materially different market and clients need the very best advice and we've already started to demonstrate our ability to attract talent by um, the n- number of resignations and joiners that we've had to come to our new organisation. So what's the plan? I mean, um, how how many people do you need uh, to, to make a, a difference in this space to disrupt? Uh, and is there anything else disruptive? Is there technology? When we, often when we talk about disruption, you hear, you know, it's usually some, somebody talking about InsureTech or something like that. But is this like that? Or is it really mostly about getting a good place, a good new place for independent-minded people to come and join? I, th- I think it's a combination of factors. So today we have, uh, th- including us, 31 colleagues either here or in the garden who be here by by mid-year I think that's a significant investment and credit to to Marcel and team whilst I was sitting in the garden in sort of launching the business in such a significant way Um, you know people talk about technology a lot Um, one of the things that we don't want to do is turn up here and do the same old same old so we are already engaged with some third parties around some interesting products outside of the core um, solution for, for, for clients um, which we would hope to launch uh, with them quite quite soon so yes we will need to compete in terms of the core credentials um, but essentially when people talk about risk and analytics 
we will have in-house capability with actuaries within our team. So we won't have to go and fight for the resource. We will have that capability, that investment is already in place and, and, and planned so that we can be modern in our thinking and modern in the solutions that we provide for our clients. And I think aligned to that, you know, clients ultimately want price and service. But if we can um, uh, build that out and attach that to innovation and our ability to be truly nimble, because we are a small team and we can make quick decisions and quick investment uh, strategies to deliver products that the, the clients will really value. Um, I was going to ask about what's the value of having no legacy these days. Um, uh, I was at a conference yesterday and there was Paul Brand and obviously, you know, business like that with Convex starting with no legacy. They've been able to, you know, are there any things that are right at the top of your list to say, well, now I, now I don't have to deal with 30 years of legacy now they've got a blank sheet of paper, what are the things that I just wouldn't bother doing anymore or things that I'm dying to get rid of that, that would have been really hard to change at my old business? Well, I, I think obviously we, we, the absence of legacy means we start with a clean, a clean sheet of paper. So everything we do um, is focused on the go forward rather than, than what's behind us. So we can spend all of our energy innovating and working with clients and prospects as we move forward. We don't have uh, legacy systems to deal with. We're, we're building out um, modern, advanced systems here, taking advantage of some of the tools that are already available uh, and others that we are still evolving. And would you be doing with developing some of those things yourself, do you think? I think in partnership with the capability of the broader group. I'd also add that in terms of legacy, we've all had responsibility within the larger firms with legacy and inherited talent that we've tolerated here we're able to bring in the talent that we want and, and ensure that they will be uh, optimised in terms of the focus that they will have on the front end and not get caught up in some of the back-end legacy that inevitably happens with uh, you know these firms. I want to get some sense of what, what sort of scale is your ambition. Um, is the ambition to, to build something that's, that's sort of niche within a niche or could you go toe-to-toe with anybody in aviation uh, broking? So we've got an aspiration to have um, capability in all of the sub-product lines. Um, we've we've led, it's, it's obvious, we've led in the manufacturing space with the talent that's been attracted to date, but we have aspiration to build out across, you know, airlines, general aviation, satellite. We've got the potential to look at reinsurance and, and in terms of the alternative um, product development, um, you know, we're, we're looking at a financial uh, solution, which Marcel's, you know, been involved in and, and can perhaps comment on briefly. What about um, that and the scale of the challenge that's uh, ahead of you? Um, you've spent all of your careers working at very large brokers where, you know, perhaps the mantra is sort of to institutionalise the business where no individual could just walk off with an account. You know, it's going to be one of the big three's accounts and it sort of always will be. Um how are you going to? How are you going to sort of try and pry some of that business away from 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 the big brokers? Well, we can't discount the issue of institutionalisation. Um, however, when you look at the large brokers in aviation, in particular, very often aviation is the only product line that that team is representing to the client, and the client is choosing other brokers for the DNO, the property, the casualties, the marine. So I think the concept of um, one broker holding the entire relationship is much rarer today, and certainly um, Spitzer demonstrated that after 2005, uh, as um, some of the larger corporate clients fragmented their their, their, their purchasing. 
Um, we think today in the market we face, the clients, again, are going to be looking for service and price. And they need the very best advice in a market that we, um, that we see ahead of us. And therefore, um, we've already had some, um, some um, very interesting conversations with prospects and clients who are interested in talking about our offering, our team, and um, how we can possibly assist them. And do you think it's going to be hard? I mean, do, do, you know, big brokers have got a huge amount of financial resource to sort of almost to sort of do things almost at a loss. I mean, if, 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 if they don't want you to have it. Um, uh, what's this sort of, you know, how much kind of runway have you got um, from your backers uh, in terms of uh, how long have you got before you might have to start showing a return on some of the investment they're making? So this has been a, a thoughtful and well, well laid out plan. Um, of course, they're looking for a return, but they're looking for a return in you know a reasonable and orderly uh, fashion. I think you're right. You know, did we do we expect did we expect there to be a reaction? You know, from the bigger firms in terms of the fight for talent, absolutely. Um, but we offer something quite different here. Um, you know, let let's be really clear. Uh, you know, our story is entrepreneurial. Be one of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it's interesting for people. I don't think anyone said to us, we don't really want to talk to you, whether that's a, a prospect, a contractor, or a potential colleague. Um, and one thing that's that certainly for me was something that I thought was incredibly exciting is we've got the opportunity to build something from scratch and we will create the culture. When I say we, you know, Marcel and I will lead it, but we, the, the collective we of the team, will create a culture. The cultures of the B BGC insurance family are very different and we will have a different culture to those firms which means we've got the ability to create something and and you know I worked in one organization for a very long time and within that period the cultures probably felt different at different phases depending on the leadership the structure etc but we've got an opportunity to create something and I think that's truly exciting. Yeah, and I think the larger brokers can always apply some concept of discounting, but ultimately the compensation the broker receives is only a tiny proportion of the overall price paid by the client. At the moment, most clients are focused on premium and uh, how much their premium is going to go up by. Um, um, clearly, broker compensation comes into it, but it's only part of the ingredient. And in the plan, sort of, you said you've got sort of just over thirty colleagues now with you. What's the, what's the plan? Is that sort of on track, or and and what's the critical mass of of, of a you know um, team building? What you know to be a credible in, uh, aviation broker? How many people do you actually need, or what does your plan say? So, you know, we've as I said, we've got aspiration to build out capability, and that will map with talent. Um, so, you know, we're not going to get drawn on exactly who or how many clearly but you, you sort of feel you're about right at the moment or, or I think I think it's pretty service what you've, what you've got. I think it's pretty impressive that we've got so many so quickly and you know there are a myriad of reasons as to why that is the case essentially we, we talk we've talked to some prospects about 31 people have made their own decision around a, a personal RFP and I think to, to, to support Philip there, I mean, 31 people largely coming from the aerospace um, side of the business and or the financial solutions team that we're building. So clearly, um, as we have ambitions to diversify into the other product lines, inferred, that number could increase dramatically. Um, certainly, we've got um, the investment appetite subject to um, 
the strategy that supports that. So we are currently already um, operating in the US and the UK. Um, we're looking at other strategic opportunities that present themselves. And um, actually, people are reaching out to us to assess whether or not um, we could be a good fit for them, either as an employer or as a, uh, a partner to uh, team with. And when you say financial solutions, obviously I'm thinking, uh, I would think about um, some of the credit insurance products that have been linked to aviation from, from, from other places. Is that the sort of thing that you're looking for? Well, very much so, Mark. It's no particular You know, secret. the financing of aircraft. It's, it's no secret that we've hired some of the uh, some of the individuals that were associated with developing uh, similar products at other broking houses. Uh, we've also hired from industry. Um, Kostya Zolotuski has joined us, um, having resigned from Boeing, where he was very much involved in aircraft financing sectors. So um, we're not going to say too much now, but we certainly putting signals out there. We've hired um, uh, from the underwriting world, uh, Mark Esdale, who joins us from Sompo. And uh, I think that states a intention and ambition to have an aviation MGA in the credit space. And we're not at the point where we're launching the product. And uh, that will certainly be something we'll be happy to talk to you about in more detail. But the very clear signals are there to the market broadly that we have ambition there. And we see that very much aligned to our strategy of supporting the airline industry and the aviation industry more broadly, not just in the conventional space, but, but in the aircraft credit and other derivative areas. We've got a number of other areas that we're working on um, that we think will be of great interest to the clients. Just one last thing before we start talking about perhaps the aviation market uh, more widely is um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, what was the genesis of this? Um, you know, was there a moment when you suddenly had this um, this light bulb went on or something, you know, when, you know, maybe we were having a having a drink or something um, when you said, you know, we've got to do this now this, and, and this is now is the time to do this uh, new venture. So we go back a long way. We were colleagues back at, at Willis in, in the in the late eighties and, and, and early nineties and then we competed at times quite viciously I seem to recall. But there was a there was always a, a positive accord despite that competitive edge. Um, you know, I've been thinking about after thirty years personally, you know, the the next phase of my career and what I wanted to do and, and, and decided that Perhaps was the right now was the right time to do something different. Um, you know whether whether or not, and you alluded to it, a major transaction across the industry was the catalyst. But for sure, in terms of Marsh and JLT, you know, for for me that struck me very clearly as a generational disruptive talent opportunity. Um, and so that got my sort of juices flowing about okay, what does that initially? What does that mean for me in my incumbent position and you know the firm that I was working for um, and and you know history would suggest that they didn't fully capitalize or haven't to date fully capitalized on that opportunity for a variety of different reasons so you know whether that was the moment I couldn't really say for sure but I'd been reflecting for some time about the chance to do something different um, and this is quite different but it's incredibly exciting and I think it's opportunistic given you know market conditions and the fact that if you look at this particular marketplace which is what was appealing to the the backers was it being dominated by so few and was fairly static in terms of movement of business and people yeah, I mean, I, so, so, same for you, I, I think 
Absolutely. Well, you know, having been at Marsh and then moving to JLT for a short time and then, you know, potential for going back to Marsh, I think it introduced uh, an opportunity to evaluate um, opportunities. Clearly, the EU uh, made a ruling in terms of the aviation business of uh, JLT and Marsh wasn't able to to acquire that and it was divested ultimately to Gallagher. So, um, you know, I'd been evaluating for for a period of time what I might do. And uh, I think actually, as we talk to talent across the industry, so have they. I mean, at this point, I think almost every individual in the industry is is making a decision. And that decision is, shall I stay or shall I go? And, and actually, there are a number of opportunities for people to, to move. Uh, in fact, not just to peak. I mean, as we clearly know, there are other new entrants and um, we welcome that competition. Uh, we see that as for a further disruption into into the industry. And, um, you know, we, we, we like the concept of competition. Um Right. Well, um, you know, Peak is a particularly interesting development, but it couldn't be more interesting from, from some of my perspective in that the market you now you're operating in is at a particularly interesting time, whereas perhaps, um, you know, any time in the last 15 years or however long this soft market ha- has been going on, it might not have been such a good time. Um, so why don't you, can you sort of run me through what are the main highlights? It seems I don't, I wouldn't know where to start with uh, with aviation when we've had uh, a large product loss, uh, we've had um, you know, withdrawals of capacity in different places. Um, you know, this mar- it, obviously, we're clearly in a, it's not just a hardening market, this is a hard market in aviation. Um, and you've probably been through one or two of those before. Um, just can you set the scene of sort of, you know, what, what, what happening in different parts of uh, all the different facets of, of, of the aviation business? And I don't know where we should start, maybe we talk about airlines and sort of things that, that make front pages, and where we are with that. And, and, and and also, you know, where we are in terms of supply and demand as well. Sure. Well, I think we should go sort of slightly deeper than that because I think uh, for a period in 2018 and 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 the early middle part of 19, there was some signals across the entire market. I think we called it a complicated market or a complex market. It was a transitional market and a firming market. Um, but, you know, if you go back to 2018 and the work that Lloyd's, for example, did with the Decile 10, um, there were some pretty strong signals around the aviation and aerospace business. It featured rather heavily as a product line. In fact, decisions were made by Lloyd's around certain syndicates, aviation uh, businesses, um, and in fact, if you go back even further than that, I think if you if you spoke to Bronick at Hiscox, he said when, when they pulled out of aviation, he'd done his own internal decile 10. So what does that all add up to? Well, you know, there was it was, a, it was a distress class in terms of profitability. So inevitably, and we've seen as it plays out, even most recently with the decisions made by Amlin, you know, to, to withdraw, that there, you know, there are key players and, and some of these players in the case of Amlin, were market leading that have taken the decision as the market is moving that this is not a part of the business that they want to play in. So, you know, each client is different. You know, um, for a period of time, a long period of time, the market was fascinated with benchmarking. Um, the market has operated a vertical placement, what the brokers refer to as vertical marketing. So getting actually the benchmarking was a reference point rather than really what the clients were paying and just to, just to clarify on vertical it's it's effectively a, a, 
composite pricing where everybody puts their own price, uh, everybody on a slip puts their own price, and you, as the broker, you tot it all up. And I don't know if it's, well, you play fifty percent at one and fifty percent at two, then the price of the client is one and a half. Is that right? Something like that. I think that I think the broker would say that they had a little bit more to do with the ultimate composite pricing than totting it up. But yes, it, it, it's it's more of a free market. I'm just my job's to simplify things. For, no, for, I understand. For, for non-experts. Um, it, it creates a more dynamic market than a, a single price across the marketplace, and so it's always been a competitive. There's been a competitive edge to it, which has to some extent driven the pricing. Um, so each client, each client is different. You know, when they come to market, their their history will be different. Um, but what's happened uh, in the past in 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 AVA or air, the broader aerospace is, if there's been a distressed sector, let's say for example airlines. Um, perhaps at that moment the manufacturing results were better and therefore to some extent there was a, a, a global perspective across the book as to the entirety of the result. I think what's happened in, in the class in recent times is they're all distressed in their own way. You know, the, you know, the manufacturing sector, the airline sector, you know, the GA, uh, we've seen in the general aviation, you know, some significant markets pull out. We've seen some catastrophic losses you know a very significant tragedy last week in the in the US you know helicopter uh, rates are, are moving rapidly and you know whilst somewhat associated even in the space market after a long period of incredibly soft market and profitable business some significant losses which is driving that market hard now as well Actually, we often describe the aviation um, insurance market as a bit like the airline industry. Um, it's a supply-demand um, business, and um, you know you could argue that for a number of years, some insurers have been selling their product underwater, much in the same way as airlines can subsidise certain routes. But very often in the airline industry, an airline pulls out of a route because it doesn't make money, someone else jumps in. And actually, we're starting to see that happen in, in, in the aviation sector as we look at Fidelis coming into the insurance sector, if we look at Convex um, um, opening up into that area, uh, Helvetia in, in Switzerland, and other people assessing their appetite for increased lines. So as Philip said, as, as one insurer, Hiscox or Amlin, um, decides to part company with that particular sector, the opportunity to um, to look at new, new entrants and increased capacity emerges. And that's, um, that's our role as the brokers, to identify those opportunities and to bring those forward to the clients. Before there was uh, quite a lot of logic in some of the, particularly perhaps let's say an airline business where over a long period of time, the attritional loss ratio of airline um, businesses just got better and better and better. I, it just got safer and safer to fly, and they had fantastic risk management programs that they had been implementing, and were a paragon of great of virtue. Uh, uh, you know, as 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 an industry sector, a fantastically safe sector, and therefore it was logical that um, underwriters would be reducing premium along with the the risk itself. There, is there anything? Is it just a supply side thing, or? Um, is there anything that's changing in the lost trends? Uh, obviously, we've seen in the casualty world, we've, we've seen this anomaly in casualty. We're starting to see you know, very long-term casualty trends uh, ticking up and claims inflation uh, going ahead of what people's business plans are and therefore that moving the market or at least changing the market's appetite. Is there any of that or is it is it more about the supply that uh, there'd been too much competition, too much capital chasing the business and now some of that capital's pulled out and therefore the price can rise finally? Well, I think you've got to separate the two issues, really. I mean, supply and demand is one issue, yeah. and then it's about uh, the fortuity of accidents and where they occur, which liability regime they occur in. 
But if you look back over the last decade or two, we have seen overall um, loss ratios, total loss ratios, accidents involving Western-built aircraft reducing. And that's credited um, you know, in part to the manufacturers who've been building better and better aircraft with more and more technology that the pilots can rely on, and in part credited to the airlines themselves as they um, apply their own um, uh, training regimes and as many of the um, emerging airlines have modernised. Plus, many of the older aircraft have been retired, predominantly down to fuel um, fuel efficiency concerns. So we've seen older aircraft being removed, new air aircraft coming in, and therefore largely um, the loss ratio, the overall loss ratios have, have Im- improved, the loss accident rates have improved. What we can't, of course, uh, uh, um, uh, prejudge is where those losses are going to occur and how many people will be involved. Aviation is one of the safest forms of transportation, but unfortunately when it goes wrong, it can go wrong catastrophically. And obviously on the casualty side, it's, that's beyond the control of aviation. So when you do have that accident, if if passenger liability cost just goes up, that's that, that's probably to do due to do with you know uh, the US legal system or anything else, which is certainly nothing to do with aviation, would you say? No, or is, I think it's or are those costs filtering through into aviation just like they are into many other non, non-marine classes? Well, cost of life is, is increasing in every regime, whether UK, you know, EU or in the US, much of it down to um, uh, liability regime and or plaintiff, um, plaintiff council activity. Um, so I think that it's also combined by low interest rates because any settlement today that a family receives for the loss of a loved one is going to drive a much lower return over time. So I think the low interest uh, uh, environment that we've seen for the last decade or more has had an impact as well. Yep. And so I'm only driving at that because I wondered how long, um, you know, uh, the aviation market, I think historically, I would have described as being slightly more volatile than other markets because of the fact that you've got, uh, because it's non-correlating and uh, everything goes very well for, 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 for different periods of time, and at the same time you do you do on the demand side you've got to buy very big limits, and then suddenly once something the supply demand thing switches, you know the, the airline still has to buy the what two or three billion dollar limit, so um, they have to just pay whatever the final marginal player on the end to complete that placement is is demanding, um, but so I'm, I'm asking about that because I'm, I'm wondering. Um, how long in your, you've got this great long experience of, of, of the aviation market, how long do you, does your gut feel tell you that you're going to have this hardening, is, how long is it going to last? Um, for, for example, also gut feel of where we are, of some of the business that's been going, being put on the books as we speak now, uh, or, or Q4, um, how profitable is that actually getting underwriters back to a level of profitability that will start making uh, the sector be attractive again or not? And then, you know, we'll bring the cycle back on again. So I think there, there are a number of factors to that. Uh, it's, it's not just simply about supply and demand. So I think um, as the broader market came through, what I referred to earlier as that complex market, um, leadership, so C- CEOs across the industry, were demanding greater underwriting discipline um, across all classes of business. So I think the the line underwriters were under pressure to assess their pricing and risk and to some extent were under greater scrutiny than they ever had been before. Uh, So, you know, I think you were at a conference earlier this week and certainly the signals coming out of that senior echelon, certainly of the London market, was of a hard or hardening market through this year and into next year. Uh, so let, let's not forget 
you know, from an airline perspective, this significant number of the risks are placed at the back end of of the year in Q4. So, you know, would we anticipate the market to continue in the vein that it has and perhaps accelerate further? I think we would observe that to be likely. Um, when, when, when the commentators and experts talk about into next year, you know, we're talking about a big chunk of the business renewing in Q4 of next year. That's an awfully long time away and it will come down to how profitable this year looks like in sector and more generally across the insurance uh, P&C market. Um, whether that that acceleration, as we anticipate, will encourage further new entrants and what that dynamic looks like. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and, and loss activity, for sure. And how sort of, I mean, what, just to remind uh, listeners, what sort of what sort of prices were, were, were rises were, were were happening? Say an airline uh, in Q four, what sort of average? Well, it's a very broad statement, but you could take an average of twenty to twenty five percent increases um, um, for an airline that hadn't suffered significant losses. It rather, depends on the growth and the size of the airline. Actually, market goes down to supply and demand. You know, very often. Um, smaller airlines, narrow-bodied, I mean, the smaller buy lower limits. If they have less reliance on limit, there's more in, imputed um, capacity available. But so, well, do you think that there's a chance of getting compounds of twenty percent on twenty percent uh, when we're talking to we're coming to Q4 2020? Well, I think certainly the insurers' were, ambitions are in that direction. It's they're looking for an, a trajectory of um, two or three years to rebase uh, where they feel they need to be. As brokers, um, you know, it's for us to work the supply and demand curve. And, um, you know, so we're, we're evaluating alternative capital. And um, as we uh, re- referred to earlier, there is new... Because you've got a feeling that, if, you know, with this 20, have they actually got somewhere that's... Mu- are they n- near the, you know, technical, um, actuarially sound pricing where they are? Or, or, or do you think there's more to come? Well, I can't say we always see their actuarial pricing. I, I, I think for insurers, they they have been on a downward trajectory for a decade. Um, at the same time as aircraft values and liability awards, as we discussed, have been increasing. So, um, again, our, our, our role is not to argue um, um, the, the, the needs and profitability of the insurer, but rather to um, work through the dynamics of the market and um, the sort of supply-demand curve. So you just got to play it by ear. I mean, you, you're the brokers. So you're out there to get the best deal for your clients, and that's just the way it's going to be, right? So. Absolutely. And you know, in in my experience, where a a market or marketplace or single carrier signals intent around a percentage increase, and I've seen that before, um, that genuinely doesn't succeed because it creates a reference point, which then gets attacked um, through a variety of different means. Uh, I think we shouldn't. Marcel referred to it. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the soft market prevailed for a very long time. So there were significant reductions in that period. So, um, you know, there has been some correction, but but at the same time, it's a growth industry. So that shouldn't be lost in the translation of rating either. And hard markets never last as long as soft markets, it seems. Well, indeed, I'm trying to think over our 30-year careers or so. I mean, I think we've seen one or two really hard markets, and the rest of it has been broadly soft, or some version of that. And I suppose, and, and, and talking about degree of hardness, I suppose it, people would define a, a really, really hard market is where you just can't get it, you can't quite place 100% of anything, even, no matter what price. Is it is it near there, or these? can you still clear an order as long as you get the right price? 
I think for the most part, I think there were um, one or two placements which were distressed, uh, very distressed. So I think that created some 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 tension. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, for the most part, that there's capacity. It's then a negotiation which will be on a case-by-case basis. I mean, rarely have we seen situations where, where risks are unplaceable. It's just a question of price and structure um, to achieve that price. And clearly, we also can recognise that many of the clients, the manufacturers already do this in part anyway, and some airlines have in the past. There's the potential for them to take retention. I mean, the airlines are um, more and more well-capitalised, cap- varies obviously by individual, um, individual client, but there is the ability for them to take some risk and, and not rely on that last 5%. Um, to, to complete the risk, um, be crazy of me uh, to have uh, uh, you know a manufacturer's risk, uh, uh, you know a product um, aviation product specialist in the room and not ask them about. Obviously, we've had you know, very high, pro- high profile um, uh, product related. One presumes it's a loss. Uh, uh, I'm sure that the lawyers are still all talking about all that kind of stuff, so we don't have to talk about it specifically. But it's been. A, a long time since some it seems to me so certainly from sitting outside it's been a long time since we had uh, a, a potentially systemic uh, loss in the marketplace like that so how has uh, how's that affected the dynamics of the market well look Mark, obviously i don't want to cl- be quoted on specific clients and actually wouldn't be appropriate for me to to, to comment on no, that. No, that's fair enough. That I just I'm, I'm want to talk about the market dynamics in the light of what the yeah. things that have I been mean, happening. first of all i'm going to rely i mean i've always taken the view from, for my clients they build great aircraft or great products that make the airline safer. Now, unfortunately, sometimes accidents happen, and sometimes that's weather, pilot, um, other effects that come in, uh, and occasionally um, there can be allegations of, of product defect. But at the end of the day, fundamentally, the manufacturers set out to build great aircraft and great aircraft components and have driven some great innovation to make um, uh, the transportation, well, the planes that we get on, much safer. So ultimately, where we see claims coming into percolating into the into the insurance market, I mean, very often it's going to be driven by the plaintiffs who will take opportunity to pull the manufacturers in, um, as well as the airlines. Obviously, obviously from a uh, from an airline liability regime, there are often limits that apply um, in terms of what the plaintiffs can receive, which is set by statute. And by pulling the manufacturers in, um, plaintiff lawyers will hope to circumvent that. So. Um, ultimately, it's a marketplace, and over the, the the 20 or 30 years of my career, the manufacturer portfolio has, to an extent, subsidised the balance of the um, the aviation insurance market. So, if we see losses occurring right now, well, you know, it's it's come at a particular time where um, it's just one year in in many where those manufacturers have contributed to the overall premium um, premium pot. So, and is there so there's a, you're sort of implying a certain sort of maturity in the market there's a so you're saying underwriters are quite sanguine about this kind of thing to think that it's likely to happen one day and that they're just going to keep trading yeah. through it's, it's not put anyone off i mean look, the manufacturers typically have a a a, a uh, attitude of long-term relationships with the insurers so we buy on the gregarian clock very often with 12-month policies um, although the manufacturers themselves over the last few of ex- a few years have extended that concept to long-term policies for many and many of those accounts are in the middle of those long-term policies very often up to three years so I think the insurers take a long-term view on them the manufacturers tend to be around for a long period I mean that there is M&A activity but we rarely see manufacturing failures in the airline sector 
unfortunately some airlines do go out of business or are subsumed into others but the manufacturers by and large the the manufacturers that were here five years ago will be here in five ten or fifteen years so it's a long-term buy for the market so it's so it's fairly healthy is what you're you're describing a fairly healthy situation where there's not likely to be any dislocation where the insurers are going to stay true uh, the clients are going to stay true and everything and the things will be worked the loss will work its way through and everything will be okay Look, every, everyone has their management pressures the client have theirs and the insurers ha- have their own so I think it's about working through the tensions of particular situations and once again you know I'd say you know the clients want to have long-term relationships with the insurers but Ultimately, they have balance sheets that they have to consider, and those manufacturers have the ability to take significant retentions through captive or other structures if indeed premiums become um, less attractive. Phil, I wanted to ask you something about, uh, you mentioned about reinsurance being a potential opportunity. We've just obviously just come through the one-run reinsurance renewals. So um, did reinsurance have anything to say in the in the aviation market or, did, or, or you know, was there any was there any influence from from reinsurers or or, or are they sort of uh, happy with what's going on in the underlying and just happy to sort of take uh, take whatever's going on there i think they looked at the underlying book and some significant losses and adjusted their perspective on any, any individual underwriting unit to whether or not they wrote those that those policies or not um, i think it was a somewhat measured response from 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 the reinsurance community they're just supportive that they're happy with the price action and the fact that the remedial action's going on in the primary world is that right well i think if you look back over time you know soft market um in in all that all that period of soft market generally there was an underwriting return to a point and i think the reinsure the aviation reinsurers were highly profitable in that period of time now there've been some events that m- have adjusted that um, but they would be looking for a reaction and I think the reaction so far has been something that would meet their expectations and another thing that specifically I wanted to ask about was um, Hull War um, obviously it's an interesting niche within the aviation niche and uh, often at different times as a journalist we've highlight- highlighted the premium pot seems to have been blown out Every other year, uh, it seems to wipe out another, uh, ten years of premium. I, I, I don't really know. So, what's happening in that marketplace? Is that particular? Is there any particular turmoil there, or anything? Any opportunity there? Do you think? Well, it's it's a small, highly specialised market, as you've said. You know, there are triggers in the policy construction that means that the insurers can um, invoke some things to create a different flow of premium than they originally. Uh, encountered um, it's a significant loss uh, you're right the premium pool is relatively small and in the past following a major loss there has been a premium reaction or you know rating reaction from from the marketplace they have got some triggers where they could um, you know create a situation where they readjust everything but I don't think we're at that point well, right also, I think aviation um, hull war largely placed in the marine war market where um, the losses, of course, are mutualized. Now, ultimately, um, profit and loss has to apply for the insurers, but um, it, it's largely paid, pl- uh, placed outside of the mainline aviation insurance market. Well, um, I think I've come to the end of uh, the general list uh, list of my questions, but uh, one, I want to wish you well with what you're doing, but do you think there's anything we... Uh, uh, could have discussed that we haven't discussed yet in, in, in our time? 
I think we've used the time productively. Um, you know, I'm 31 days in. Uh, it's been a whirlwind of a month. Um, I'm excited by what's been achieved today. You know, we're very early on our journey. Um, you know, I'm excited about the disruptive opportunity, the technology opportunity, the talent opportunity. I'm interested when I can um, to talk to, um, you know, clients, you know, former clients and prospects. Um and, you know, this this all adds up to something that will be a dynamic, a different, and hopefully for all a compelling uh, proposition. And I've got one last question. It's a bit Columbo. Um, the great thing about being a journalist is being able to ask sort of slightly stupid questions that have been bugging you for years. And actually, I was just looking at your business cards in front of me. And, and, and Phil, you're the CEO, and Marcel, you're president. And I'm as a Brit, I've never really ever get my head around what the difference between president and CEO. Because often, and so often, perhaps in US companies, someone is the chairman, CEO, and president. And and I was I, anyway. What's the difference between uh, your two roles? Well, a chairman, CEO, and president gives someone a lot of power. Okay, <laughs> um, you know, we've set this up um, as a partnership. Um, we will have different responsibilities. Um, we're working through um, sp- some of those specifics. Uh, we form peak risk partners as an independent business. Uh, you know, we're a Lloyd's broker. We have a Lloyd's broker number. You've got your own border. And we'll, yeah, when there's regulatory um, requirements around that. And so we're working through uh, that. You know, what we've found today uh, is a great accord. Uh, we reconnected. Um, you know, Marcel was working incredibly hard while I was in the garden. He's probably had to adjust a little bit as I've arrived, but. Uh, 31 days in, I'd say, so far, so good. So, President's better than CEO, is that right? Well, I, I think I get to have all the fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, I, no, but I still, I'm still none the wiser, but it sounds, if you were co-CEOs, would that be okay as well? I've never been uh, a great believer in co-anything <laughs> or deputies. No, and actually, to be fair, we did talk about whether we would have titles at all. I mean, we want to have a flat society. I mean, obviously, there has to be um, authority and um, sign-off and some understanding. But um, more broadly, you know, we've all, all, all we've all worked in this business for a long time, and it's about working to our strengths and weaknesses. From my perspective, great to have Philip here um, in, in, from January. Uh, as he inferred, I was I was here for some six months, um, pretty much on my own. But uh, our our colleagues are starting to join us as we speak this week and as we move into the next uh, few weeks ahead, we're we're, we're multiplying our our leverage and our uh, our talent pool. One thing I'll regret if I don't say it before we close is, uh, and this has been reported in the press, you know, we we are attracting and are building um, a diverse um, team. We've got roughly 40% of the staff either here or uh, en route here who are female. Um, we're not looking to um, looking to go in the just in the highly experienced area of the market. So we've got some 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 people you know who are young in their career that are going to gain great experience through this process as we build out a business in a very flattened an open and dynamic uh, forum for them. So the message is just come and talk to you if uh, wherever you are in your career, uh, you want to, or even if you're not an aviation person, you want to make the switch. Is that right? Sounds pretty good to me. Be diverse. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, good luck with your venture. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>